Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to a new episode of New Books in Islamic Studies, which operates online through the New Books Network. I'm your host, Sher Ali Tareen. For each new episode, we choose an important new book in the broader field of Islamic studies and we chat with its author. In her scintillating and brilliant new book, Colonizing Kashmir, State Building Under Indian Occupation, Hafsa Kanjwal details and showcases the discursive and institutional means and mechanisms through which the Indian state made possible and maintained its occupation and colonization of Kashmir. Focused on the mid-20th century period of Bakshi Ghulam Muhammad, the second prime minister of Jammu and Kashmir, Kanjwal examines a range of arenas including tourism, agriculture, film, education and political engineering through which a seemingly post-colonial nation-state, that of India, perpetuated its colonization of Kashmiris, all the while justifying that colonial enterprise through the ruse of state building. From the resulting analysis, Kanjwal forcefully and convincingly pushes us to rethink the very separation, temporal and conceptual, between the colonial and the post-colonial. Historically invasive, theoretically cutting-edge, and written in prose at once mellifluous and purposeful, this book is nothing short of a wonderfully mesmerizing intellectual earthquake in the fields of South Asian history and contemporary politics more broadly. Here now is my conversation with Professor Hafsa Kanjwal. Uh, hello, Hafsa. Welcome to the New Books Network. It's great to have you here uh, to discuss your very exciting uh, new book, Colonizing Kashmir. Uh, as I was saying before we went on air, or pressed record rather, that uh, this is such a, a book which will really speak to multiple disciplines uh, in uh, really interesting ways, ranging from post-colonial thought to history to religion, anthropology. So I'm really excited to talk to you about this book. And we have a tradition of some on the New Books Network that our first question is always biographical. So I was wondering if you could share a bit with our listeners about your this, uh, briefly about your story. How did you become a scholar? Sure. Thank you, first of all, for having me. Um, It's really exciting to be here. Um, So there really was no plan to be a scholar. I would say it happened very randomly. I was born in Kashmir. I moved to the U.S. when I was pretty young. Um, But this is during the 1990s when the situation in Kashmir was very difficult with the armed rebellion and the popular uprising against India's rule and then India's subsequent crackdown. Um, So I grew up with hearing these stories when I was younger, and I actually wanted to be a journalist. And then 9-11 happened. um, And for many people growing up in that moment or being in college or high school at that time, um, many of us wanted to do something relating to either helping the U.S. understand the Muslim world better or fix relations or 
whatever we thought at the time. Um, so I got interested in international diplomacy. Um, and I think I had a bit of a naive understanding of how that that worked. So I went to the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown, where at the time I focused much more on the Middle East. Um, after graduation, I worked at a nonprofit that was broadly in that space. But I would say I probably wasn't the most pleasant employee because my supervisor at the time told me that I was too critical and that I should consider academia. Um, and so I did. But even when I was applying, because I hadn't really given it much thought, um, I didn't fully understand the PhD application process. I applied to PhDs and master's programs in Islamic studies, anthropology, history. Um, and I was fortunate to get into the PhD in history and women's studies at Michigan. Um, and then there, I decided to kind of switch over to South Asian history and work on Kashmir, which of course was um, my passion all along. Perfect. So I want to begin, Hafsa, by talking about what I saw as one of the major conceptual arguments and interventions that this book makes. It's called Colonizing Kashmir. Uh, and one of the key points that you repeat throughout the book uh, is that we ought to think more critically about the often assumed division between the colonial and the post-colonial, because here you have a seemingly post-colonial state that is yet engaged in this colonial project. So before we get into the specifics of the major actors and the archives and the themes that come up in the book, I was wondering perhaps a good way to start our conversation would be to have you talk about this underlying conceptual argument of how you interrupt the division between the colonial and the post-colonial and how do you mobilize that conceptual theme and argument in this specific context of Kashmir? Yeah, sure. Thank you for this question. So when we think about colonialism, it's in a number of ways. One, of course, is that it's something that has happened in the past, and now we are in a post-colonial period um, that may still be reeling from the impact of colonialism, but that in general decolonization has happened even if it's incomplete or imperfect. Um, others also use the term neocolonialism to describe some of the existing power relations between the global north and the global, uh, global south, especially through international institutions and the market economy and so on. Um, but even then, it's still this idea conceptually that colonialism happens from the West or from Europe, the global North, um, into the rest of the world or the global South, um, and that it's often kind of pegged in this overseas. Uh, there's always this idea that it happens overseas. Um, and what this fails to kind of bring into focus is the power differentials within the global South and South to South colonialisms. Um, which often get obscured, especially when there is some kind of geographic contiguity um, between the colonial power and the, the territory that's being colonized. So for India, it becomes even more difficult to situate India as, as a colonial power um, because it was anti-colonial. It had this very romantic, triumphalist narrative with Gandhi, Gandhi and nonviolence and the Indian National Congress. Um, this movement that has been valorized in so many narratives. Um, and so to see this, this you know, perfect story of anti-colonial rule against the British and then to situate India as a colonial power is hard for some people to make that transition. Um, but what I think the context of Kashmir can help us think about is that even as these new, new, new nation states became independent from European rule, their nationalist projects engaged in colonialism in regions that did not easily fit into the national body. And I think that provides a very different lens into state formation in the context of these new nation states. 
And there are some critiques um, that scholars and others have leveraged about the Third World Project. Um, one, that many of the nationalists were elites themselves, and they kept many of the hierarchies intact. Um, but it's also important to understand that they also accepted and adopted the European model of sovereignty and territoriality that was then reinforced through their own forms of imperialism. So in that sense, we're actually quite far away from um, from de from true decolonization. Now, the bulk of your book focuses on um, uh, the politics and the transformations um, and the mechanisms of uh, uh, colonial power under the rule of Bakshi Ghulam Muhammad, the long-running prime minister of Kashmir. But the other figure who also comes up very in very interesting ways is, of course, uh, Sheikh Abdullah. So I was wondering, for, especially for listeners who may not be familiar, uh, and before reading your book, in fact, I was also not familiar with the tons of very remarkable and interesting details that you present in your book. But perhaps you could introduce our listeners to these figures of Sheikh Abdullah and Bakshi Ghulam Muhammad. And then the second part of my question, and this speaks to the earlier part of your book, is I was very um, struck by the uh, relationship that these two figures had to the uh, Indian project of uh, state building in Kashmir. Uh, could you speak a bit about... Uh, uh, their engagement with that process and how do, does their engagement uh, highlight for us some of the contradictions and tensions that hover around this whole project of state building, which of course is a key, key dimension of your book as well. So I examined the client regimes, um, both Sheikh Abdullah's to a certain extent, but of course focusing on Bakshi that the Indian government put into place in Kashmir after the occupation began in 1947. And part of the initial agreement that India had with the first client regime, which was led by Sheikh Abdullah, is that Kashmir would have significant level of autonomy through something called Article 370 in the Indian Constitution, which for those listeners who might be following current developments um, was abrogated over four years ago. So Article 370 basically meant that India had control over Kashmir's foreign affairs, defense and communication, and everything else was within the purview of the Kashmir government. So at this, under this kind of setup, Kashmir, um, the Jammu and Kashmir state had its own flag, its own constitution, its own legislative assembly, and the leader was actually even called a prime minister. So the first prime minister is Sheikh Abdullah. There's a lot written about him. He played a pretty pivotal role in the anti-Dogra, and the Dogras were Kashmir's princely rulers during British colonial rule, um, during that agitation against monarchical uh, rule. And... He gets close with Nehru and the Indian National Congress um, and actually goes along with supporting Kashmir's accession or the contested accession to India. And part of the reason for this is that he was given this impression that Kashmir would have significant autonomy. And in a way, it's possible that he thought that he could run his own kingdom as the prime minister. So when Sheikh Abdullah is placed into power after the accession, um, the Maharaja, the former Maharaja, is basically sidelined. Um, he is extremely repressive. He attempts to shut down any discussion of um, a plebiscite um, and har harasses and targets Kashmiris um, at that time who wanted to, the state to merge with Pakistan. Um, but what Abdullah is interested in is autonomy. Um, and he wants to also do state building because part of what Abdullah and the National Conference, which he led, uh, part of their whole policies, especially in the pre, um, uh, in the 40s, was that, you know, they wanted to empower, especially Kashmir's rural peasant 
majority Muslim population who were uh, struggling economically under the Dogras. And so they needed the kind of funding um, to do these different state building projects. Um, But what happens is that Abdullah wants to maintain some level of financial autonomy because he doesn't want to rely on the Indian government, which again, at this point, only has control over Kashmir's foreign affairs, defense and communications. So he needs to figure out like a local way of getting the money and the funds um, to do the state building. One of the things that uh, his government ends up doing is taxing um, the agricultural class, um, but that causes more issues and creates even more economic discontent. Um, He also takes uh, steps to um, conduct land reform. Um, And this was kind of one of the major transformative uh, policies that his government put into place. Um, And part of it was, of course, to empower Kashmir's peasants, but also to get consent for the rule of the National Conference. But what happens is that uh, Hindu landlords um, see this as a communal move because the, those who owned the land for the most part were Hindu, those who tilled the land were, were Muslims. And so there are agitations against him. And he realizes that there is this rise of Hindu majoritarianism um, that will impact Kashmir um, and Kashmir's future within India. Um, and he also realizes that the Indian government is not actually interested in autonomy because slowly but surely they're trying to have a greater say over other areas that go beyond the three that that have been um, designated for them. And so he makes a series of these incendiary speeches calling for the plebiscite, saying that the session is not completed. Um, and the Indian government, with the help of his second in command, Bakshi Gulam Muhammad, basically leads a coup against him in 1953. And so Bakshi comes to power. And Bakshi is this really interesting figure. Um, He comes from a pretty poor background. In some ways, ideologically, he's not very political. Um, He's just kind of interested in state building um, and kind of um, ensuring that uh, India's accession to complete, uh, sorry, Kashmir's accession to India is finalized. Um, And so he has no qualms about taking Indian government funding. Um, which Sheikh Abdullah did to fund these various state building projects, whether it's schools, infrastructure, or different types of economic development. Um, And he knows that to manage the political sentiments of the people after the coup, that this is important. In some ways, they need to kind of be bribed out of um, all of the political discontent that exists. But then this also means that Kashmir's autonomy then is undermined as Kashmir becomes a lot more reliant on funding from India. So in some ways, both of their examples reveal how problematic this notion of autonomy within the Indian state was. On the one hand, for Sheikh Abdullah, there was some level of autonomy, but really no way to effectively execute a state building project. On the other hand, with Bakshi, there was a lot of state building, but no autonomy. Um, and either in either case, Kashmiris did not benefit from it. One of the other major themes uh, in your entire book, but especially that comes up in uh, chapter two, I believe, uh, and you already touched on it a bit, was a critique of this um, very dominant notion that the uh, third world politics of you know nation states like India in the 1950s and 60s were all about anti-colonialism and uh, you know uh, uh, socialist uh, justice, etc. Uh, but you make the very interesting argument uh, that in fact. Uh, it is precisely this kind of politics in which India and Bakshi were presenting 
uh, you know, their politics as uh, banner bearers of anti-colonialism, socialism, etc., that in fact undermined uh, the Kashmiri aspiration for freedom and in fact undermined uh, uh, the will of the Kashmiri people. Could you speak a little about this argument? Yes, so this brings us to the Cold War context in which Bakshi's rule was playing out. Initially, the U.S. and other Western governments actually supported the plebiscite, the U.N.-backed um, plebiscite in Kashmir, and were putting pressure on India and were quite critical of the Nehruvian government. Um, but then what happens is that Pakistan makes a series of military deals with the United States in the 1950s. And so now India is able to position Pakistan as being in this imperial camp. And then it's able to situate itself as the vanguard of the third world, as anti-colonial, um, even as it was actively denying the people of Kashmir the right to self-determination. And one of the interesting things that is happening at this time um, that I go into in this chapter is that um, Bakshi and the Indian government encourage and invite Muslim leaders from different Muslim-majority countries, uh, leaders, journalists, academics, etc., to come to Kashmir and see this quote-unquote developing that development that was happening under Bakshi's government. And part of the intention is then to gain their consent for India's rule in Kashmir and also isolate calls by Pakistan for Muslim solidarity on Kashmir. In addition, the USSR at this time um, was initially kind of trying to stay neutral, but then increasingly um, sided with India. And in 1956, uh, the premiers of um, the USSR make a pretty high profile trip to Kashmir, um, where they're shown around and um, treated by Bakshi uh, and kind of visit the different development that's happening, schools, etc. And as a result of that visit, they start to vote against the plebiscite or any kind of resolution at the UN. Um, and so a lot of this is then again situated in this way in which India and the Bakshi government was able to um, use Pakistan's relationship with the U.S. Um, as as serving imperialism and them then being um, anti-colonial or kind of uh, leading the third world. Um, but of course, even then, after that, geopolitics shifted because the U.S. then needed India to counter China in the 1960s. And so the U.S. then even kind of um, gets away from uh, supporting the plebiscite, which then that's when you have the shift from this being an international dispute towards one that is um, just seen as between India and Pakistan. Now, in the following chapters, you show the multiple ways in which uh, this whole uh, project of uh, colonial occupation was actually uh, made possible. Uh, the different domains of politics and the different discursive uh, domains in which uh, this was brought about. And I really found this next chapter to be extremely fascinating and very interesting, where you talk about uh, primarily the, the media and other kinds of mechanisms through which the Indian state and also non-state actors have really tried to present and exoticize uh, Kashmir as an object of desire, as this kind of exotic place that is both, uh, uh, you know, depoliticized, but also orientalized in its own way. Um, and you give a number of examples in this chapter, ranging from Bollywood to, you know, uh, different forms of tourism, etc. But the one theme that was particularly striking for me was the way in which this whole drive, and you show that this began much, much earlier than you know, the 90s, it was in fact happening in the 50s, 60s. But the theme that I really want to 
focus on is this convergence that you show between secularism, Hindu nationalism, and Orientalism, and how this whole project of exoticizing Kashmir as an object of desire, especially for middle-class Indians, was 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 uh, uh, carved. Could you speak a bit about uh, this phenomenon and also this convergence that you so nicely argue in this chapter? Yeah, so film and tourism have served in many ways to territorialize what I call territorialize India's colonial occupation, and they continue to do so um, in both secular and uh, Indian secular and Hindu nationalist imaginaries of Kashmir. Kashmir is presented as a Hindu space and the heart of Indian civilization from the ancient to present times. And this actually comes up in a number of um, the Indian films that are made in Kashmir at this time. And these narratives were especially prevalent in tourist propaganda materials um, that were made in or about Kashmir at the time. And they often erased Kashmir's Muslim histories or relegated them, as with what happened across the subcontinent, to stories of invaders. Um, How this relates to Orientalism is that particular mythological texts like the the 12th century Sanskrit text, the Rajatarangi, were used by Kashmiri Brahmins, the Dogra state, and British Orientalist scholars to serve as the uh, authoritative text on Kashmir's history. And then these texts were used to show the time immemorial relationship between India and Kashmir. And so in these guidebooks, what I saw um, was that aside from the beautiful landscape, it was particularly Hindu sacred geographies like temples, springs, and villages that were made uh, central for the Indian tourist caves. And one of the things that I examine is how the Amarnath pilgrimage, um, which happens with much more fanfare today, but um, but it was also popularized at this time. Um, and so this larger infrastructure of religious tourism that served India's Hindu nationalist state building agenda in Kashmir had already commenced under Bakshi. And Kashmir then was constructed not just as a site of desire for middle-class Indian tourists, but also a site of religious attachment for Indian Hindus and integral to India's sacred, um, or in Hindu sacred geographies at the expense of Muslim ones. The other key uh, governmental domain that you uh, devote a whole chapter to is this whole narrative of uh, development. Um, And uh, again, the paradoxical argument that you make here is that as much as this narrative of development, especially under Bakshi's uh, manifesto of Naya Kashmir or New Kashmir, was there uh, to quote-unquote develop Kashmir, but it really was premised on this whole idea of Kashmir being backward or undeveloped or, you know, uh, uh, unable to support itself. And thus, this whole project of development, in fact, further uh, entrenched uh, the Indian uh, colonial occupation of Kashmir. Could you speak a bit about this uh, inverse relationship between the narrative of development and and uh, uh, the entrenchment of colonial occupation? One of the primary interventions the book tries to make is um, understanding Kashmir at this time through something uh, called the politics of life. And I actually borrow this term from the scholar Nev Gordon, who uses it to describe Israel's occupation in the West Bank after the 1967 war. And the politics of life basically refers to how the Indian government and these client regimes like Bakshi's propagated development, empowerment, and progress to secure the well-being of Kashmir's population and also to normalize the occupation for multiple audiences. So for example, Indian, the Indian middle class or the Soviet Union and other Muslim countries. 
Um, it entailed foregrounding the day-to-day -day concerns of employment, food, education, and the provision of basic services. But then at the same time, questions of self-determination and Kashmir's political future were being suppressed. Um, and this was kind of this like ideological thing that the Indian government had, because even the first uh, prime minister of India, Nehru, is purported to have told Sheikh Abdullah that India would bind Kashmir in golden chains. So just think about that, binding Kashmir in golden chains. And the government intended to ensure that with an improved standard of living and greater prosperity, Kashmiri Muslim sentiments would shift in favor of India. Now, the reason why I think this question of development or the politics of life is important is that when we look at settler colonial context, the common understanding is that these are places of immense dispossession, violence, war, and marginalization. And of course, many times they are, and that has also, of course, happened in Kashmir. But then only seeing colonialism as being defined by manifest violence obscures um, our understandings of the ways in which it can also operate through giving, development, and empowerment. And that is precisely what defined the early years of Indian rule in Kashmir. And this is also related to questions about elimination within settler colonial studies. So scholars of settler colonialism argue that not all states seek to just kill off the subject population by literally eliminating them, and that the elimination can also occur by assimilation, or what I call integration in the book, um, where the idea is to rid the people of their own sense of history and identity and bring them into line with the colonial state through these various modalities of control, one of which is the politics of life. Hmm. The next chapter, of course, focuses on the domain of education. And uh, here again, um, the thing that I found uh, most instructive and fascinating was that you argue and you show how the process of secularization is so deeply connected to the process of uh, colonization. Um, and here, especially, I mean, uh, for me, what was of great interest was the degree of suspicion uh, to which uh, the texts by Mulana uh, Bulala Maududi were seen and this constant drive to make sure that a certain kind of a sanitized, secular Indian nationalism is transported uh, to Kashmir and implemented there through the domain of education. So uh, I know in this chapter you give a lot of examples, but maybe taking one or two examples, could you talk a bit about this intimacy between secularization, colonization, and education under Bakshi? Bakshi's government um, was very nervous about relations between Kashmir's religious communities, and they were also anxious about communal tension. And so they saw, as did many of the other client regimes, as um, they saw educational institutes as one place where they could intervene in order to promote what they called communal harmony. And one of the ways they did this is by rewriting the history syllabi. And so Kashmiri history was refashioned to make its incorporation into India seem seamless. And the writers of textbooks were urged to focus on the medieval and the modern eras, and this would be the post-47 eras, as these were seen as speaking to the secular demands of the contemporary moment. So the life histories of famous medieval poets like Laldad and Nunreshi, and more inclusive Muslim rulers like Zainul Abidin, who sort of plays a similar role as Akbar does in the Mughal context, were highlighted. And the Sanskrit text that I mentioned earlier um, was also situated as the text for Kashmir's history. 
And any figure who had fought for or died for Kashmir's accession to India, they were also highlighted. And there was actual pushback from Muslims in the state who felt that even though while the state was appearing to be secular, it was in effect erasing uh, Muslim histories and foregrounding Hindu mythologies. And one Kashmiri bureaucrat basically stated that the educational system was meant to create a sense of integration with the nationalist ideas of India um, and was actively pushing away from educating Kashmiris about their own history um, or their own sort of culture and language, etc. Um, so yeah, so the example that you mentioned earlier with certain texts that were being taken away, um, like anything that was seen as kind of going against this narrative of secularism or in, in some ways syncretism, which was later labeled Kashmiriyat. Um, it, that term itself wasn't so common uh, in the 50s. It was popularized later on. Um, but it was precisely those histories that were foregrounded because they were seen as justifying um, Kashmir's incorporation into India. So I just want to ask you a follow-up question to this one. It's such sort of a fascinating um, question. And if, if I may, before we move to the next chapter in question, um, to what extent do you think, I mean, this, what you describe in your book, of course, was the state-engineered um, uh, project of secularization and trying to project this kind of a secular image of Kashmir as peaceful, as exotic, as not too religious, etc., etc., which is part of a certain kind of an Islamophobic um, project of secularism. To what extent would you say, or in what ways would you say, has this whole projection of uh, India, of, of Kashmir as uh, uh, best presented when it is quote-unquote secular, to what extent do you think it informs even uh, voices in the academy when it comes to South Asian studies, uh, without taking any names, if you wish, you could take names as well. But to what extent do you think this kind of uh, attachment to a secular conception of Kashmir or a secular image of Kashmir even informs uh, academic discourses, whether that is in India or in the Western Academy? Um, I know this is not the focus of your book, but I, this is a question that came to my mind and might be uh, interesting. And you do, of course, critique South Asian studies in your own very sophisticated ways. But if you could speak a bit about the intimacy between this mid-20th century project of secularization and the kind of academic lenses through which Kashmir is seen even uh, to this day in the academy. Sorry, that was a long-winded way of saying uh, something that could have been shorter. But yeah. No, that absolutely exists. I mean, that's why so many of us are writing or trying to write against these um, these narratives, which seem to be very kind of like, you know, like, they seem to be positive that they that Kashmir was this secular space and so on. Um, but what the work that, that those kinds of narratives is actually doing is very much in favor or in line with the Indian colonial project. And the reason why I say this is that um, part of what how Kashmiri Islam in particular is being depicted is depicted is that it's less it's not Muslim enough or that there's enough Hindu influences in it to make it not super Muslim, um, as with the, uh, the Islam, for example, that's practiced in Pakistan. Um, and so that's why, so one of the argument goes is that that's why Kashmiri Muslims uh, favored accession to India or were more in line with India, which is absolutely not the case. Um, Kashmiris have had a lot of solidarity with Muslims um, across, you know, across that, that partition divide, etc. And they still continue to do so. Um, but part of Part of this kind of narrative within academia and within kind of Indian government circles, etc., is also then that this 
this desire for freedom or this desire for liberation is criminalized as being a particular type of Islam, right? Either the influence of Islamism or Wahhabism or some kind of Pakistani-influenced Islam. It's never seen as anything that is indigenous or that belongs to the Kashmiri people themselves. Um, and I think that's why it's particularly insidious in that anything, any attempt that Kashmiri Muslims make to articulate or like make their own aspirations known um it's it's viewed through that through that lens right uh, uh, thank you uh, the next uh, chapter uh, takes on a range of issues uh, and very interesting fascinating in fact actors and texts and um, uh, to do with the left and the progressive you know writers movement etc but to make my question more specific, I was particularly intrigued by this figure, Akhtar uh, Muhyuddin, whom you talk about extensively in this chapter. And could you speak a bit about who he was and how does his, uh, the trajectory of his career as a writer, as a, a literary writer, show some of the ambivalences uh, in the relationship between Kashmiri writers like him uh, and the Indian state? Akhtar Muhyuddin was a Kashmiri novelist and short story writer. He was affiliated with some of the leftist or progressive writers in Kashmir um, that were beginning to kind of organize in the 1940s and 1950s. But as I show in my sixth chapter, many of these writers were co-opted or brought into the state bureaucracy under Bakshi. And Kashmir's cultural intelligentsia faced significant pressures to join the ranks of his administration. And Bakshi was also able to exploit many of their desires or needs for a steady income. Um, many of these writers and artists would come to be accommodated into the Jammu and Kashmir Cultural Academy, which still exists today, and what was basically tasked to consolidate what was considered Kashmiri culture in the realm of music, literature, um, theater, and dance. But this was also like a very selective um selective attempt to portray Kashmiri culture because the mandate was to show the links between India and Kashmir through this culture and also reflect, again, kind of going back to the same theme, um, a syncretic Kashmiri culture that was able to align well with the Indian state. So as his day job, Moedin was basically working within these status cultural institutions. He even served as a secretary in the same cultural academy. Um, although I do find some interesting ways in which he tried to push back in, in the archive um, in terms of the way in which certain uh, aspects of Kashmiri culture were being portrayed. He even received Indian literary awards like the Sahitya Academy Award for some of his published works. Um, but part of what Moedin's story also shows is that those very same Kashmiri artists that worked in the state bureaucracy found ways to subvert the state narrative. And so the state's control over cultural production was not hegemonic. In the case of Moedin, he wrote novels and short stories, which paint a very different picture of Kashmir um, at the time than what the government wanted to project, which in a way served as a counter narrative to the politics of life. He writes about people being pushed by greed, loneliness, helplessness, and subsequently making questionable choices. He also writes about how people learn to live and function in a fractured society. His short stories covered a range of topics, relations between Kashmiri Muslims and Kashmiri Pandits, the ways in which elections in Kashmir were ruses to serve the ruling party, and the corruption that came with this newfound wealth under the politics of life. Now, what's interesting about Moedin's story is that he was given the Padma Shri Award, which is the fourth highest civilian award given in India. 
Yet in the 1990s, in the wake of killings during the armed movement against Indian rule, he renounced this award and he had also previously renounced his Sahitya Academy Award. Um, both of his son, uh, both his son and his son-in-law were killed in the violence at that time. And what's interesting is that he also dedicated his, his 1975 novel to the person who would fire the foot first bullet to set things right in Kashmir. So his trajectory from being someone um, who was incorporated into the government's cultural intelligentsia to later renouncing the awards that he received um, reflects in many ways the complex interplay between conformity and resistance in the context of a colonial occupation. And in many ways, this was not just specific to the subjectivities of the cultural intelligentsia alone, um, but many others in Kashmir at the time. You end uh, the book uh, by uh, further emphasizing and, and elaborating uh, the idea of what you call a democratic colonial occupation. And in having you maybe speak a bit more about what might seem as if, uh, you know, uh, when one looks at this phrase, it might seem to be somewhat ironic. How could democratic colonial go together? But you, that's precisely what you've shown in this book. And you also make the point that, uh, you know, one of the other major stereotypes and sort of dominant uh, viewpoints is that uh, what's happening, for example, in Kashmir now is only an aberration and it is some kind of a departure from in India's otherwise, uh, you know, uh, 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 commitment to secularism and pluralism, which is a counterpoint to Hindu nationalism and the violence of the modern state, uh, of the contemporary Indian state. But you really thoroughly problematize this kind of a binary and you basically show that, in fact, it is precisely the, the very structure of the Indian state and the very sort of claim to uh, being a democratic state, which is integral to this project of colonialism in Kashmir. So could you speak a bit about that category? Because I think that is the one category in which uh, uh, sort of readers who don't read your book carefully might might feel a bit perplexed or uh, more than perplexed even. So could perhaps speak a bit about this category and, and why it's very important to not uh, approach the Indian state in this kind of a bifurcated way between uh, the problematic Hindu nationalist state and the otherwise unproblematic secular pluralistic state, etc. Yeah, so one of the things that I was intrigued by as I was doing my research and part of what I tried to do is look at other com comparative sites um, across not just in South Asia, but in other parts of the world as well. And what's interesting is that Kashmir to me was not unique. I thought initially um, when I started that it was this unique space and I didn't know how to make sense of it um, from like a theoretical perspective. But What's interesting is that these colonial relationships exist across all types of nation states, whether they're authoritarian, democratic, secular, socialist, capitalist. And so with India, it's a country that is purported to be democratic and secular, and in a way that obscures its colonial nature. And I think the U.S. in many ways is a good comparative example as well, because one of the, uh, one of the sites that I think about uh, in relation to Kashmir as well is Hawaii. Um, and there's a lot of similarities there as well. And so in many ways, the US is also a quote unquote democratic colonial occupation. Um, and I think what this calls into question then is then in, is the territorial sovereignty of the nation state itself, no matter what type of government exists. And I think these zones of colonial occupation can also help us think about how nation states nation states can slide into these diverging political formations. 
So when we think about what often is now touted as the slide into authoritarianism in India today, how can we then not situate it into the longer histories of India's colonial occupation of Kashmir? And so subsequent to that, part of what I'm really happening, hoping to do with this book is to point out how, as you mentioned, problematic it is to draw on this idea of a secular pluralist India in, a, in an attempt to combat Hindu nationalism today. One, as the book shows, and I think it's relevant in India and not just in the Kashmir context, but the category of the secular was used to erase and tame Muslim histories and aspirations. But that didn't necessarily mean that religion was sidelined. Um, Hindu geographies, imaginaries, and mythologies were central to these secular discourses, which actually shows a much deeper relationship between Indian secularism and Hindu majoritarianism. And this is not surprising because, as you've worked on as well, secular state power decides what belongs in the category of religion or what is deemed communal. Um, the second reason why it's so problematic is that it completely ignores the immense violence of the secular liberal Indian state. And we don't even have to look at Kashmir for that. We can turn to Hyderabad, the Northeast, Punjab, um, the multiple pogroms against religious minorities that happened under Congress rule. And I think there's an immense level of nostalgia for some great Indian past, but I can't seem to find it. And I think that that sentiment only reveals the privilege of those who hold it. Um, and I think it's really important for, um, for people to really grapple with the assumptions that they make about Indian secularism. So Afsa, before uh, we conclude, uh, could you kindly share with our listeners a bit uh, what's the next thing you might be working on? So I'm working on a kind of a more of a trade book right now. It's a tentatively titled A People's History of Modern Kashmir. Um, and it will kind of give a broad overview of um, the Dogra period until the contemporary moment. Um, and also include a chapter on everything that's been happening since 2019. And then I also have a second project uh, more on Islam decolonization and the question of Kashmir which is, is still in the works. So. Colonizing Kashmir State Building Under Indian Occupation by Professor Hafsa Kanjwal, published by Stanford University Press in 2023. Uh, thank you so much, Hafsa, for your time and for this really incredible book, uh, which I'm sure, uh, beyond any cliches, will spark a lot of interesting conversations and debates. Uh, and thank you for sharing some of your insights about this book with us today on New Books in Islamic Studies. Thank you. So this was my conversation with Professor Hafsa Kanjwal on her wonderful new book, Colonizing Kashmir. I hope you enjoyed this episode of your favorite podcast, New Books in Islamic Studies, which operates online through the New Books Network, NBN. Please join me next time for another fresh episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. Until then, this is your host, Sher Ali Tareen, signing off. Take care, stay well, and keep listening to New Books in Islamic Studies.